0: you got your Bibles with you, you can turn with me to Hebrews chapter 2. It is a good day to be in the Lord's house. I look forward to um, hearing what the Lord, Lord's Word has for us this morning. As Christmas is approaching, we are taking a break from our exposition of Acts. We're almost done. You know, that's relative, I guess. Only six or seven more chapters in Acts and we'll be finished with the book of Acts. We're taking a break from that exposition, to focus on the birth of the Savior, to focus on the salvation that He accomplished as we approach this uh, uh, Christmas Day and the celebrations that we'll be having at the birth of our Savior. And last week, if you were here, we looked at Philippians chapter 2, that famous passage, the Carmen Christi, the hymn to Christ. We saw how the eternal Son, Jesus, who is God of very God from all eternity, emptied Himself by taking on a human nature to be born in Bethlehem. And then being found in human nature, that text tells us, he humbled himself, becoming obedient even to death, giving his perfect life as a sacrifice for our sins, that we might be saved. And finally, last week in Philippians 2, we saw that he is now exalted as both God and man Forevermore at the right hand of the Father, interceding for His people. Well, this week we are going to uh, we're going to continue that thought, and we're going to ask the question: Why? Why did the Eternal God become? Man, and of course, that's an easy answer. We've been singing about it all since we've been here. He came, became man to save us. But one of the places where we find that question answered in more specificity is Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 through 18. The book of Hebrews is written to Hebrew Christians who were under severe pressure and persecution. To go back to Judaism. Once you became a Christian out of uh, out of the he- Hebrew uh, faith, Judaism, you know, there was lots of pressure from your family and from your business relationships and, and just from the community that you'd always known. Uh, you would be suffering persecution. You would be uh, tempted to make life easier just to go back to the old ways, go back to the temple sacrifices, go back to those things. Well, the book of Hebrews is written to proclaim that there There's nothing to go back to. Jesus is the fulfillment of God's perfect plan. And Hebrews tells us that He's better than the angels. He's better than the animal sacrifices. He's better than the temple. He's better than the priests. Even better than Moses himself. Jesus is the fulfillment of all of these things. That's what the book of Hebrews uh, strives to tell us. The eternal God made flesh. And in chapter 2, verses 14 through 18... We are given four reasons why God became man on that first Christmas day. Let's read those together. In verse 14 of Hebrews 2 it says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, He Himself likewise partook of the same things, meaning flesh and blood. He became a man. That This is the reason... "...that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death," that is, the devil, "...and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham." That's anyone who is in Christ. Galatians 3.29 says, "...if you're in Christ, you are the offspring of Abraham." Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. He had to become human so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and then we'll get into this text. Father, we do love you and we thank you for your word. Father, I pray that you would just help us to see your majesty and your glory today. Help us to come away with from this text, God, with just an awe and wonder of, of not only who you are, but what you have done for us as we prepare ourselves for family and for all of the things that we're going to be doing over this celebration of the birth of our Savior. God, we pray that you would just give us a, a renewed and refreshed um, sense of wonder of what it meant for... You to send the Son to become a man and die on the cross for us. And Jesus, we thank you that you emptied yourself, you humbled yourself, and that you came and took upon the nature of man so that we might be saved. Father, we pray that you would be with us as we read your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. In this text, it's laid out out pretty simply. You could probably catch these four things without me having to tell you. The first one is, God became a man. He took on flesh to destroy the devil's power of death. We see that in verse 14 and 15. He says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. Now, children here in verse 14 are all of the people mentioned in the previous section of Hebrews. If you look back in the verses previous to this, the the children are the many sons who will be taken to glory. It is those who Jesus was not ashamed to call His brothers. And in verse 13, He quotes an Old Testament passage saying the children that God has given to the Son, the uh, the Father has given to the Son. So in short, children here is human beings. It's, It's us And it says, he, he, he says, because humans share in flesh and blood, because these children share in flesh and blood, he himself became flesh and blood. He partook, he shared in the same things, the same flesh and blood. And here's really the same truth that we dived into last week. The eternal God took upon himself a complete human nature, God, of very God, became what He had never been before. He had always been God, the second person of the Trinity from all eternity past, and now He became man. And verse 14 tells us the first reason why. He tells us the reason He partook or shared in flesh and blood, so that through death He would destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. So by dying on the cross, as 100% God, 100% man, he destroyed the devil's power of death. Now when I read this this week, there were several questions that came to mind. The first of which is, how does the devil have the power of death? I mean, technically, he doesn't possess control over death as if the devil's the one deciding when people die or not. But He holds the power of death in the sense that in the garden when He seduced mankind to sin and rebel against God, He is the one who brought death about. God told Adam and Eve that on that day, the day that you eat of this tree, you would surely die. Literally it says, dying you will die. God made the wages of sin death. But when Satan tempted Adam and Eve to sin, he became the author of sin. And through that sin, came death to all creation. And from that point, all mankind, all the sons and daughters of Adam, now enslaved to sin. All human hearts ruled by the kingdom of darkness and under the sentence of death. And unless God Himself were to intervene, death in that sense means eternal separation from God for every son and daughter of Adam forever consigned to darkness. But Jesus' death and resurrection, because He came as a man and died and rose from the grave, He overthrew the kingdom of darkness and the tyrant who claims it for Himself. He conquered Satan's hold over the hearts of men and transferred us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, as it says in Colossians 1.13. But that leads me to my second question. The text, if you look closely, doesn't say that he destroyed death, although indeed he did. It says he destroyed the one with the power of death. So is the devil destroyed today? I mean, if that's so, why does it seem like he's very much alive in this world? Why does Peter say that Satan himself roams as a roaring lion seeking one to devour? Well, the word destroy in the ESV that you see on the screen is probably better translated rendered powerless. That's what the New American Standard says. If you have an NIV in front of you, it says that he might break the one who has the power of death. So it's not that the devil no longer exists, but it's that he's powerless in the face of the gospel of Jesus Christ. As 1 John 3.8 says, Jesus appeared to destroy the works of the devil. So yes, the devil's very very much active, but his power is broken for those who are in Christ. He has been conquered, and his property, namely us, has been plundered by a greater king. He still prowls like a roaring lion, he still lashes out, he still attacks. He's still a roaring lion seeking to devour, but he's a lion on a chain. So if he bites you, It's probably because you got too close. Or God is using him to grow you and train you as he did with Job. Because for the believer in Christ, all things work together for good. For those who love God and are called according to his purpose. So that's the first reason that God became man. To conquer the kingdom of darkness. By the gospel, sinners are reconciled to God and pulled from the grip of Satan and death. The second reason we see in this text, verse 15, He came to deliver those that were enslaved to the fear of death. We already read verse 14, but 15 is uh, completing that sentence to destroy the one that has the power of death, the devil, and deliver all those who through the fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Just as Moses came in the name of the Lord to deliver God's people from slavery in Egypt, so Jesus, the greatest The greater Moses, God Himself, came to deliver His people from lifelong slavery to sin and slavery to the fear of death. Physical death still occurs in a fallen world, even in the lives of believers, but we don't have to fear it anymore. Romans 8 tells us death cannot separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. And Satan can no longer use the fear of death to enslave us anymore. But this brings another question to my mind. I mean, do all people really fear death? Are all people enslaved to the fear of death? i got to be honest, I know a lot of people who don't seem like they fear death. I know a lot of stories about people throughout history who didn't look like they feared death at all. So are all people enslaved to the fear of death? The short answer to that question is yes. But fear of death isn't expressed the same way by everyone. Now, of course, there are some people who are just, they are, they're just terrified of death and what comes after it, and and they're just paralyzed in fear about about what death means and the coming judgment afterward. But fear of death also enslaves people by causing people to just refuse to think about it, to push it away and and not give it a, a thought at all, to make themselves busy with endeavors and entertainment and distractions, anything, just to keep from looking into the face of death. These people, you would see, they're not cowering in fear in a corner, but neither will they look death in the face. Just put it out of sight, out of mind. We don't talk about it, we don't think about it, we don't deal with it. Enslaved. For others, the fear of death drives them to build empires, to strive to leave their mark in this world, in business or politics, or or just some worthy cause to have something to show for my life. When death finally does come for me, fear of death. For others, the fear of death causes them just to just live for enjoyment. Because they know that life, this life will end, no matter what we do, no matter what we don't do, unless Jesus returns first, this life will end in death. So why not just live for my own pleasure? I can remember exactly where I was. And exactly what I was doing when the fear of death enslaved me. I was in college. I wasn't born again, but if you asked me, I would have said, Oh, yeah, I'm a Christian, and I could have quoted you a hundred Bible verses to back it up. I was, but I wasn't a Christian. I was sitting at my desk in my room at college and I was studying for a microbiology test. The stress and the weight of learning all this stuff, it just seemed overwhelming. And the thought occurred to me, it was almost like I had a conversation with myself in my mind. Why do I have to do all this? And the answer came, I didn't hear a voice or anything, but the answer came in the next thought, well, you need to pass this test. But why? Why do you want to do that? Well, duh, I want to pass the course. Well, well, and then what? Well, you need to graduate. That's the whole point, right? You need to graduate college. But then what comes after that? This is all going on in my head. I remember the day. I remember the moment. Well, you got, I got to get a degree so I can get a job and I can make money and I can have a life. Well, What's the point of that? I want to be successful so I can enjoy life and have a happy life before I die. And I remember the moment. The next thought came. You're going to die no matter what. No matter how hard you work. No matter what kind of life you build for yourself. What you have, don't have, no matter what you accomplish, don't accomplish, you are going to die. It's all going to come to an end. And something clicked in my little immature brain, and I thought, well, why don't you just enjoy life now and be happy? And from that moment, I threw responsibility to the wind. I went and played music for a living. I lived that lifestyle and spiraled down into sin and worldliness, just trying to enjoy life while it lasted. I got a D in microbiology, by the way. Now, I wasn't cowering in fear about death, but it was the fear of death, knowing that this life will come to an end, no matter what I do, no matter what I don't do. It enslaved me to a life seeking after things to try and satisfy my soul before my time runs out. And all of the things that I sought All of the things that I sought for enjoyment and pleasure and all of those things, fun, entertainment, all they could do was bring me further and further into that slavery separated from God and condemned. But praise God for the gospel. He saved me. It was years later in my living room on a Thursday afternoon. God saved me, changed my heart. And to those in Christ, death holds no power. No fear. In fact, death only holds blessing. When death comes for the born-again believer, it draws us nearer to the one our soul loves. Death is the doorway, physical death is the doorway to, to glory with Christ. It is the end of our battle with sin day in and day out. When our faith is made sight in a new heavens and a new earth. Jesus' death and resurrection conquered the grave and the fear of death. The enemy can no longer use the fear of death over our heads as a weapon. Now, I'd be remiss if I didn't say if you're not united with Christ, redeemed, and walking in the newness of life, you should be afraid. You should be very afraid. Because for you, death will be the ultimate and final separation from every blessing of God. And I know some people, uh, some friends of mine who are not believers will say, well, I don't need God's blessings. Oh, yes. Oh, yes, you do. When I say every blessing from God, I'm talking about the air that He breathes or that you breathe. His air. I'm talking about a cool drink of water on a hot day, a sun sunrise. Just the common grace that we take for granted every day that are gifts from God. All that will be gone and you'll be separated from His goodness forever. But even as an unbeliever, if you're here today, that fear of death can be used by our enemy just to turn you away and say, go live for fun, go live for work, go live for accomplishments. Go. The fear of death, our great enemy death, should turn us to the only solution that there is. Jesus Christ, the way, the truth, and the life. You don't have to be enslaved to sin and death. I remember being at a, a revival meeting. They used to have revivals where you would go like to church every single night of the week for a couple of weeks. They don't really do that much anymore. But I remember being at this this meeting, and um, this little old, there was a teenager that was playing through the whole service, and this little old lady walked up to him from behind him, and she said. <laughs> Son, you want to go to hell? And he got wide-eyed and he said, No ma'am. And I I love this. She said, then don't go. That was it. Turn around, went back to her seat. <laughs> the door has been set before you. The way is open. Access to God is open through the gospel. You don't want to go there? Don't go. Trust in Jesus. The third reason that God became man, He became man to become our high priest and our sacrifice. Verse 16 says, For surely it is not angels that He helps, but He helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, He had to be made like His brothers in every respect. He had to take on a human nature, and this is why, so that He might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of God. Of the people. Here we're shown he didn't come as an angel to redeem angels. He came as a human to redeem humans. He had to be made like his brothers in every respect. He had to be flesh and blood. He had to take on a human nature. In the Old Testament, the high priest represented God before the people and represented the people before God. Man cannot approach. Uh, God, He is holy and we are not. Sin has separated us from our Creator and it cannot be overcome by anything. So what human beings need, sinful human beings, which is all of us, is we need a mediator. We need a high priest who can come and step forward and lay one hand upon man and one hand upon God and mediate between us. But no one can do that. Even the greatest, most godly saint cannot mediate between God and man, not even Mary. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But Paul the Apostle in 1 Timothy 2.5 says, There is only one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Jesus is able to mediate because He is both God and man. He bridged the gap between the holiness and the righteousness of God and the frailty of mankind. And our high priest doesn't come before God empty-handed either. He says, our high priest makes propitiation for the sins of the people. Propitiation is a big word. It means he turns aside the wrath of God. If you have an NIV, it says he makes atoning sacrifice. In the Old Testament, the priest couldn't come before God either. Not without a sacrifice for his sins. On the Day of Atonement, the high priest had to offer a sacrifice for his own sin and then come before God with a sacrifice for the people. But our high priest had no sin. He needed no sacrifice. So he offers himself as a perfect sacrifice in our place. Look what it says in Hebrews 10. In Hebrews 10, verse 11 through 14, it says, And every priest, talking about the Old Testament priests, stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, meaning animal sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered, look at it, for all time, a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. And look at verse 14. For by a single offering, He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Jesus, our high priest, has perfected His people by propitiating their sins with Himself. By taking the wrath of God upon Himself, He turned it away from all of those in Christ forever. That is what it means to be a propitiation or make propitiation for the sins of the people. Listen, believer, there is never going to be a time in this life or in the next when the wrath of God abides upon you, ever. That almost sounds scandalous, doesn't it? It, it sounds too good to be true. Jesus took all of the wrath of God for my sins. The sins that I have done in the past, the sins I will do in the future in Christ. We're free. That defies comprehension. Now, if you take that statement to mean, well, great, I can sin all I want because I'm free, it means you're in bondage to sin, you're not born again, and if you die, you will bust hell wide open. But as one united to Christ in salvation, whose heart's been changed by the gospel and the Spirit indwell, you hear that and it's just just wondrous. It means that you know, we're still fallen, we're still prone to sin, we still don't love God as He deserves to be loved with heart, mind, soul, and strength. We still fail, we still sin, but it means that we're free to live for Christ without fear. Free to come to Him in our failings and in our sins without fear. Not walking around our Father on eggshells hoping that He doesn't see my sin and throw me out of the family. No, there is no more wrath of God for you if you are in Christ Jesus. In Christ we come with confidence to the throne of grace. Why? Because our sin has been removed. It's been taken by a substitute. Our God became man To satisfy the demands of the law and mediate between God and man as our perfect high priest, and to be himself the perfect sacrifice for sin, propitiating the wrath of God, turning it aside. And finally, the last thing, God became man. And this is the one that's often overlooked by believers as we walk in this world. He became man to help those who are being tempted. In verse 18, it says, For because He Himself has suffered when He was tempted, meaning as a man, He is able to help those who are being tempted. Listen, when the eternal God took upon Himself a human nature, He became fully human. Fully God, fully man. He had a human mind, a human body, and a human soul. He wasn't just God driving around in a human suit. He was fully human. And he himself suffered when he was tempted. He experienced the same weaknesses, the same limitations that all humanity experienced. In John 4, at the, by the woman at the well, he got tired and he sat down. In Matthew 4, when he fasted, he got hungry. On the cross, he said, I thirst. On the night he was betrayed, in John chapter 12, he told the disciples, I'm deeply grieved in my spirit. He knew what it was to have a broken heart. He wept for Lazarus and the people that were standing around Lazarus's tomb that were in their unbelief. He knew what it was to be poor, to be despised, to be forsaken by his followers, denied by his disciples. He knew what it was like to look into the anguish of His mother's face as she saw Him being crucified. He knew the hatred of His enemies. And He knew something, praise God, that we won't ever have to know. He suffered in the garden because, before He went to the cross, knowing that His Father, for the first time in all eternity, was about to pour out His wrath upon His only Son. Our high priest was tested, tempted in every way. But where we fail time and time again, he never failed. He never sinned. Temptation came to him from many directions, but he faithfully accomplished God's will to his very last breath on this earth. Now, we understand these things. But sometimes we think, yeah, but you know... He he was human, but He's also God. And because He was God, His temptation was really less than what we have to endure. Don't you understand? It's just the opposite. It was so much more because He was God. Jesus knew the full force of temptation because He endured all it had to give and never broke beneath it. We give in to temptation long before the full force of it's ever felt. He withstood levels of temptation and trial that none of us will ever know because we buckle long before that level's ever reached. And because He faced all that temptation, all that trial, all the human frailty, all of it that it all had to give and conquered it all, He is able to help us in our trials. In our temptations, as we walk with Him in this world, He Himself, having experienced these things, walks with us through it all as the Spirit indwells us. He understands our plight more than we ever could understand it. You know, Christmas is not such a joyful time for everybody. Many people have lost loved ones. And this is their first Christmas without them. Many people have lots of trials, lots of things going on at Christmas time. And there is suffering in all those things. Jesus is able to help us, it says, when we're tempted in our sufferings, in our trials, when we're tested. He's able to strengthen us in that moment. He's able to strengthen us because He's already presenting us to the Father blameless and holy as redeemed children. He accomplished all that's necessary. Our sins are forgiven. Our guilt is taken away in Christ. And He is able to comfort us even as we walk through the valley of the shadow of death in this fallen world because His Spirit abides in us, empowering us, guiding us, leading us, interceding for us. So really the question that remains is, how do I avail myself of this help that is given here in verse 18? How do I tap into this help? I think the answer lies two chapters later in Hebrews 4. It says in Hebrews 4 verse 15 and 16, it says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin... And here's your answer, verse 16. Let us then, let us therefore, because we have a high priest who sympathizes with our weakness, then, therefore, let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, look at it, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help when in time of need. The eternal Son became man to destroy the power of death, to deliver us from the fear of death, to be our mediator as our high priest, to make sacrifice, propitiation for the the wrath that our sins deserve, and even to help us through the temptations and the trials of this life because He conquered them all and He dwells within us. That's why God became man. This is what we're celebrating when we celebrate the birth of Jesus. He became man to save us in every conceivable way. So, what must we do? Verse 16 Let's draw near to Him with confidence, with faith, and receive mercy and grace. Unbeliever, mercy and grace to be saved, to be adopted into His family, to be born again, given the Spirit indwelling you. And believer, to find mercy and grace to help in the times of need as we're walking after Christ and we're failing so bad. The Bible says, draw near to God and He will draw near to you. Jesus said, come to Me. All you who are weary and heavy burdened and you'll find rest. Take my yoke upon you, he said. My yoke is easy and my burden is light and you will find rest for your soul. Be united with Christ today. Trust in His death and His resurrection that He died for me. That He paid for my sin. Be born again by the Spirit of God. And in your time of need, in your time of temptation, as you still walk in a fallen body, in a fallen world, but with a Holy Spirit inside, you will find grace and mercy to help in the time of need. Let's pray. Father, we do love You and we thank You for Your Word. God, we thank You for Your provision. We thank You for sending the Son to die for us. Thank You for that miracle of God taking on flesh Jesus we thank you for humbling yourself for emptying yourself for taking on a human nature so that you might save us for giving your life on the cross Father there is no greater miracle than this there is no deeper theology than this God help us to never get over the fact that you came and you died to save us And that through you we are perfected by one sacrifice for all time. You have perfected those who are being sanctified. Father, help us never to get over it or get used to it, but to marvel in it. To approach this holiday season, this Christmas that we're going to be spending with family and friends and celebrations and all the things we got going on. God, to approach it with the awe and the wonder of knowing that this is about you. It's about salvation. It's about the way, the truth, and the life being revealed to mankind. Father, help us to see you for who you are and to never be distracted by the shiny objects and the trinkets of this world. Lord, if there's anyone here that doesn't know you, I pray, God, that you're speaking to their heart and that you would draw them to yourself and that they would see, I need a mediator. I can't do good enough. I can't do good. I can't be right with God by any other means than through the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And God, I pray that you'd give them the strength to call out upon your name, to trust in you, to entrust their lives to you and to receive salvation in the Spirit of God. God, for us believers, I pray, Lord, that You would just help us to understand that though we go through sufferings and we go through temptations and trials, we don't go through them alone. You've left us a way of escape. You've given us the Holy Spirit within, within us to guide us, to direct us, to intercede for us with prayers that we don't even know how to utter. Father, help us to come with confidence to the throne of grace and to walk in Your way under Your strength. Lord, we do thank You. We love You today. In Jesus' name, amen. As always, I'm going to stand right down here at the front. If you would like to come, please do. I would love to pray with you. Will you stand with me?